This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris. You know, we had a little mini break on our last episode where we replayed some of the best mm-hmm. bits of our chat with Jane Norberg. And we, we got on and, and talked a little bit ourselves. But I wanted to say that turned out to be right on time. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, Chris, right. but just days ago, the SEC announced a $279 million whistleblower award the highest ever by more than double so replaying the chat with jane i think get into the discussion of correlation or causation here but somebody is a quarter billion dollars richer around (laughs) the same time that we had replayed parts of jane's episode so you know make your own conclusions there yeah absolutely whatever that whistleblower brought to the table was obviously important and i think you know jane's take was There are things that companies can do better in terms of building their internal reporting structure. And I think we noted in the episode that something like one in five whistleblowers who received an award didn't actually tell anybody at their company before they told the SEC. So if that $279 million award caught your eye, definitely recommend going back and listening to our chat with Jane Norberg. But I digress. That's not what we're here to talk about today. You know, Chris, I know we Mm -hmm. like to weave in some pop culture references from time to time. We've talked a bunch about Billions, Succession, some other shows that hit on securities, regulatory enforcement topics. We're going to kind of go down that path today, but slightly different angle. Why don't you tell the listeners what we're up to? Yeah, we've, we've kicked this around for a bit, and, and we're thinking about this time of year, right? We're turning that corner into spring, and, and one of the summer traditions here in America is that of the summer movie blockbuster, right? It originally came about with this idea of the movie Jaws that came out in the mm-hmm. summer of 1975. You know, people standing around the block busting the actual concrete that it's on. Can't miss summer movies have really been a part of our cultural milieu, similar to baseball and apple pie, right, when summer comes around. Classic summer blockbusters include E.T., Star Wars, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, and I don't know how many now, Kurt, Marvel movies that have come out in the summer to show that Iron Man or Captain America or whomever is the greatest, you know, both selling popcorn and getting folks out to the theater. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's really funny when I was looking at our show notes before this, Chris, you mentioned that spring is like just getting here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's been here for a while. We've lived through two waves of pollen, but <laughs> is, I mean, is there still snow on the ground up there in Buffalo? I'm sure there's a parking lot where they've plowed a lot of snow somewhere that's got those last few kernels of salt there waiting to melt. But yes, we've enjoyed a mid sixties here for like four days in a row. So you'd think summer is here to stay. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, looking forward to summer. Absolutely. I mean, I wonder if Chris, you mentioned the summer blockbuster. Are there any mm-hmm. that, that you remember maybe standing in line for as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I came of age kind of in the movie going, and I like to say the bike riding phase of my life, kind of as the the Star Wars prequel movies came out, the much derided and, and maybe much loved by former Commissioner Rob Jackson, the three movies that predated the original series in the 70s and 80s. So shout out to my friend Ryan, who, uh, you know, we grew up together back in, in upstate New York, where he and I would ride our bikes together to the movie theater on an odd summer day. We had a whole setup, Kurt, where we would 
you know, stand in line, get our tickets, and then we'd find three open seats together, and I would be in the seat in the left, he would be in the seat in the right, and the popcorn and soda would be on the seat in the middle. Nice. Giving us good arms room, you know, yeah. to get out and, and, and kind of enjoy the movies. But Ryan's an, an avid listener here, so glad to shout to him and think about those days. I won't tell you how many decades ago, Kurt, uh, you know, taking our huffies down to the, <laughs> the bike rack at the, the Lowe's Theater and, and checking out some movies. How about for you? What do you remember from from coming up with summer movies? Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I was thinking about this. There are obviously a, a ton of movies you start to go to, especially once you're kind of, you know, old enough to, to start dating. But a couple that really stuck out for me, and I'm going to date myself here, but I'm going way back. The first yeah. one that I, that I remember really well was Back to the Future 3, which came out in 1990. That, wow. <laughs> that's the one where they actually go go way back to the Wild West. And I remember right. it was one of the first movies where I sat way down front with a couple buddies, you know, similar <laughs> setup to you. Neck craning, right? <laughs> exactly. Just completely blown away by how it was. A pretty cool experience. Mm-hmm. And then a, a couple That's summers, great. Batman Returns, you know, that was like the summer blockbuster that That's for right. some reason, my parents had this idea that it would be cool to go to a late night show. And so I remember going to like a 10 p.m. movie to watch. It didn't get over <laughs> till like after midnight, which was super yeah. late for me. But I mean, just remember mm-hmm. still being like crazy on the way home because it was just, mm-hmm. I mean, the movie was awesome and I was a kid. Yeah, was that's great. So yeah. so yeah, the summer blockbuster, man, so much fun. And obviously our listeners know where we're going with this, Kurt. We are going to talk about some of the seminal movies in finance, accounting, securities law, and maybe even market structure. Who knew that we could create some movies out of that? We're going to stay wonky here, but we're also going to talk about some of those fresh movies that have happened over the past few decades. Yeah, that's right. And spoiler alert, we are not going to talk about any movies with Wall Street in the title. Apparently, we're also not going to talk about any movies with Wolf in the title. I'm not going to take that personally. <laughs> you know, apologies to listeners, Michael Douglas, Leo DiCaprio, and Shia LaBeouf. I'm, I'm sorry we're not going to talk about your movies today, guys. But we did want to talk about a few films that we think were, you know, really interesting, maybe thoughtful, and that may or may not be on your radar. Maybe they just need another watch so that you can remember how good they are. And obviously, Kurt, we're limited by our time here. We also want to give a call out to our listeners. And I'll say we have more than 500 regular listeners at this point to the Insecurities Pod. So thank you all for listening along. If you've got movies we don't talk about today, please reach out on Twitter, LinkedIn, or shoot us an email. We'll be happy to to update uh, with some of the other movies that maybe we don't cover today. All right. Well, Chris, without any further ado, Let's dive in. We're going to kind of take these chronologically, I think, although you've got a little mm-hmm. surprise for me at the end. But we're going to go back in time to when traders actually traded by talking or, or yelling or from what I hear sometimes exchanging blows on a trading floor, sometimes discussing the price of frozen concentrated orange juice, which, which had to be the hottest commodity on the market at some mm-hmm. point. All right, Chris, so I've probably given the game away, but do you know what movie we're starting with? It's the the 80s classic Trading Places, Kurt. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Okay, so for those that don't know, Trading Places came out in 1983. Amid growing fascination with Wall Street and some of the characters that were getting rich in the, the heady world of high finance, the opulent wealth and the sort of growing inequality was portrayed in Trading Places by the uber-wealthy antagonists, the Duke Brothers. You'll remember, Chris, the Duke brothers couldn't decide whether nature or nurture was more likely to lead to success as a trader, maybe in life, in the business world. 
And when they found one of their star employees in an altercation, the Duke brothers decided to settle that debate with a real life experiment, trading the places of two very different lives of two very different men. That's right. The The headliners in this film are Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Actually, I believe this was one of Eddie Murphy's very early feature film appearances back in 1983. So uh, we all know him as, as a beloved comedian now, but he was still kind of on the rise then. Dan Aykroyd plays that uh, that well-to-do employee, Louis Winthrop III, a name directly out of central casting for an executive at a at a trading firm. Uh, Eddie Murphy is, is the kind of street smart hustler, if you will, named Billy Ray Valentine. So Valentine, the character, actually physically runs into Winthrop on the street. Winthrop, unfortunately, reacts from a place of privilege and immediately calls for the police to arrest this man for attempting to, to steal from him right on these trumped up charges. The Dukes see this altercation, Kurt, as you referenced, and decides these are the two folks that are going to help them decide uh, if nature or nurture plays out better. And why not have them switch places? Valentine, being someone from the street with no advantages and no background, could he serve as a successful executive with his his knowledge of the streets and his abilities versus, uh, you know, Lewis Winthrop III, who not only is the third of his name, but has also come from a place of, of extreme education and affluence as, as he had. Of course, to pull off this bet, not only do they have to elevate William Valentine's status. That's right. Excuse me. <laughs> but, but they have to also sort of bring Winthrop down a couple of pegs. So they really set him up just to lose everything. They take his, mm -hmm. his car, his house, his, 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 really his dignity, and they end up getting him arrested for being associated with you know, illegal drugs and other things. And they literally trade places with these two individuals when they're in the county jail. So, you know, throughout the, the film, right, there's obviously a lot of mischief and, and happenstances happens. Winthrop consistently tries to regain his place by arguing for, for his previous job, for, you know, attempting to now plant drugs on, on uh, William Valentine, the esteemed executive at the Duke and Duke Trading. William is enjoying those finer things in life while he hears, unfortunately, you know, over a conversation in a men's room that the Duke brothers are actually going to settle their bet and, and move on from this whole whole effort after William has performed up to their liking. Unfortunately for, for William, he will be reverted back to Billy Ray, put back on the streets by the Duke brothers. And unfortunately for Louis Winthrop III, the Duke brothers are not going to continue on with him either. So they're kind of, you know, leaving both of their test subjects out to dry here. So in in realizing this, uh, you know, Aykroyd and, and Murphy actually unite again and hatch a plan to, you know, potentially bankrupt the Duke brothers and make themselves rich in the process. Yeah. And I think that's where we really get interested in terms of the, mm -hmm. the topics that we cover here on the podcast. That's I have right. to say, going back, it's a good watch. Some of it doesn't hold up. Some of it is actually pretty offensive in retrospect. Different time period, different yeah, time period. Different time. But, you know, the reason we're talking about it today is because a lot of it really is enduring. And again, it's once we get to this part where they're sort of scheming to get back at, mm -hmm. at the Duke brothers, I mean, you kind of have a commodities trading 101 in there. There's a couple cool scenes where they're explaining it to William Valentine earlier in the movie. But then once they're figuring out how they're going to bring about this scheme to, to bring down the Duke brothers, we really start to get into some of the good stuff that we care about. So, I mean, Chris, without giving away too much, folks maybe haven't seen it, but why don't you tell us some of the financial lessons that we might glean from the movie? Yeah, I guess, Kurt, I don't know how long spoiler alerts need to go on, but we're looking at, what, 
40 years 40, at this point years, in terms yeah. of how long it's been. So we will hold out on, on how the movie results. But, you know, the climax in, in, in the kind of the last third of the movie really depends on the interplay between closely held information and its impact on the markets in real time. You know, in this specific circumstance in the movie, there's a specific government report about agricultural forecasts for the coming year that's seen as a crucial part of the day's determination of specific commodities prices. So you can imagine in a world if the forecast for the crop is is good, the crop will perform. They'll have a lot of, in this case, orange juice down the road. So the demand for commodities contracts in the current environment today will be less. So the price of those will be less because you won't be worried about securing your oranges at a future date. Conversely, you can imagine if the forecast for the crop is bad, there will be less oranges in the future, meaning there is a higher demand to secure delivery of that commodity in the future. The prices of those commodities will go up. Kurt, I know we're diving into the numbers here on the accounting side. You still with me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, supply and demand, right? I, I think I'm with you. Easy stuff. Easy stuff. So you can imagine if a certain set of brothers who own a trading house got their hands on a, a government report before the market did, they could buy and sell their commodities futures contracts to their own gain and maybe through the loss of the market. But Kurt, if they received bad information and the market turned on them at just the right time, you know, say someone yelling sell 30 April at 142, that could turn over the apple cart. I mean, the orange cart in this case. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what that's what happens in the movie. We won't spoil it. But let's just say that the Dukes make a bad bet on the basis mm -hmm. of some bad information. And, you know, our boys Winthrop and Valentine seem to do OK at the end of the movie. <laughs> that's right. Heroes all. Anyway, definitely worth checking it out, not just because it has a great cast and there's some great repartee between Aykroyd and Murphy in but because again there are some there's some things that came out of this movie that hang with us even still today like Chris did you know for example that there is or was supposed to be an Eddie Murphy rule I can't imagine through his storied career what that might be about, Kurt. But tell me about the Eddie Murphy role. I mean, this is really just, you know, the smashing together of all the things we talk about here on the podcast. Right. So the Eddie Murphy role in 2010, then CFTC chairman Gary Gensler. Yes, that Gensler testified in front Name of the familiar. House Committee on Agriculture. And in that hearing, he recommended an Eddie Murphy rule that would ban insider trading using non-public information misappropriated from a government source. So if he's proposing that in 2010, Kurt, that means it's legal to steal government information and, and trade you know, upon probably that? Probably not, Chris, but you know, okay. we're, we're hitting on some mm -hmm. themes we've talked about in the past. It feels a little bit like maybe some of those political intelligence insider trading cases. You know, we're mm -hmm. actually, if we're, I don't want to get too wonky here since we're talking about movies, but when we think about the CFTC, it's much like the SEC, right? The commodities laws don't have a specific insider trading rule. Mm -hmm. Neither do this law. We see much less insider trading in commodities or at least alleged insider trading in commodities, although there was a case very recently out of the, the CFTC. So kind of the same the same world that we live in with the SEC. I should also note that <laughs> there is something as fake insider trading or insider trading on fake information. And the SEC at least will bring those cases from time to time. There was an interesting case a couple of years ago where someone who called himself the bull was sharing fake insider information on the dark web and people were using it and, and not really trading very well. So I think Eddie Murphy rule or no Eddie Murphy rule, looking back, they could probably find a couple, they being, you know, CFTC enforcement, could probably find a couple things to pick at here. 
I'm glad, Kurt, that you referenced this case from a couple of years ago. If you're going to sell information on the dark web, you got to use a nickname, right? You don't want Chad selling you information <laughs> on the dark web. It's got to be the bull. It's got to be the raven, right? Something interesting. So be sure to watch out for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Kurt, Trading Places, obviously a classic. There will be a certain subset of our listeners. I won't point to their relative ages who will remember that movie fondly. We're going to skip ahead about a decade or two uh, and jump into, you know, another kind of heady time in, in finance and in valuation specifically, uh, you know, that of the late 90s and early 2000s around kind of the dot-com era. And Kurt, I know, I know you're very excited to talk about the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But the movie I want to reference has actually predated that act by a couple of years. No, that's too bad for you, buddy. I know that you really wanted to talk about some of those Enron and WorldCom and all the accounting, <sighs> you know, things that came on the back end of that. But I gather we're not going there. We're not going there. We're going to talk a little bit more on the accounting side when it comes to pink sheet traded stocks and IPO bridge financing, Kurt. Woo! <laughs> Do you have any idea of what movie I'm talking about? I mean, not based on that description, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's based on a similar fact pattern to one of the movies in 2013 that actually got nominated like Jordan for the Belfort best kind of movie. It is kind of along that vein. I think there's never been a solid answer about the germination of this specific flick but in the in the year 2000 the movie boiler room was released starring giovanni ribisi a a not yet so fast or furious vin diesel ben affleck kind of in in a key part of his career and then a, a cast of high octane actors playing you know over the top stock traders at a long island based boiler room operation in contrast to that dedicated story of jordan belfort played out in the wolf no relation of wall street Boiler Room as a movie actually takes a darker view of that impact of those kind of pump and dump schemes and how they, you know, create, you know, opportunities for success and also loss on behalf of, you know, those kind of mom and pop investors. Yeah, so I do remember this movie. I actually love mm -hmm. this movie. And, and you forgot to mention Seth's love interest, Abby, who was played by Nia Long. She's That's fantastic. Right. Yep. And honestly, you can't say enough about Ben Affleck's limited role, right? When he he comes in to sort of give that speech during That's the recruiting right. session, the, uh, the I'm an effing millionaire speech. I mean, it's just like dripping with quotable <laughs> lines. That's right. It's so good. He slides the Ferrari keys across the, t I mean, just, it's amazing. So I, I really do love this movie. And it's so Let's, for anyone who hasn't seen it, we'll do a quick, a quick little synopsis here. So Giovanni Ribisi's character, Seth Davis, starts out as a college dropout who's running a poker game out of his New York City apartment. He's just amazed when his cousin comes by one night with his very wealthy friend, Greg, who's talking about his job as a trader at the firm JT Marlin, and really just talking about how much money there is to be made in that job. Greg sees something he likes in Seth and recruits him to come on board as a trainee and get into this world of stock trading. And it really, Kurt, at this point, sounds like a rags to riches story, right? You've got this kind of, again, streetwise kid, you know, running a poker game who's now on his way to be a stock trader. The movie progresses. Seth quickly passes his exams, uh, you know, Series 7 at the time and begins trading those stocks that the firm's pushing on pink sheets, right? Those kind of penny stock trades to what they call uninterested whales or mm -hmm. what, what can be described as kind of targeted wealthy clients who don't currently trade with other firms, right? They don't have a brokerage relationship and maybe lack the sophistication to independently evaluate the recommendations they're being provided. Now, Kurt, before you get too excited, 
The year 2000 predates regulation best interest by a wide margin. <laughs> it is not even a twinkle in the regulator's eye at this point. So there's there's a lot going on there we can unpack. I, I know. It's a, it's a shame, really. And maybe, you know, we keep talking about writing a, a movie, a securities movie. It's like Boiler Room 2, The Revenge of Reg B.I. I don't know. It could be amazing. <laughs> I think I've got some work on the title. <laughs> anyway, so our, our street smart protagonist, Seth, eventually gets a little too smart for his own good. And he realizes that the operation at J.T. Marlin is is really just a boiler room. And actually, all they're doing is creating demand for these stocks among these, you know, sort of unsuspecting whales, as, as you put it. These forced sales, <clears throat> these forced sales essentially pump up the price of these stocks. So the traders are getting their commissions. And they know that at the end of the day, these guys on the other end of the phone, I think they're all guys in the movie, they're just going to lose their shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as I said, right, it's kind of a darker take on, on the same story. The movie focuses on on a single character named Harry, who's kind of you know, portrayed as a middle-class family man who gets a call from Seth decides to jump in on this this sales effort, you know, for a certain stock that they're pitching, you know, putting his life savings, you know, the money that, that him and his wife had put aside for a house into this stock. And, and the sale happens before Seth starts to get wise, but it really is a illustration of Seth's education on how JT Marlin's operating and the impact it's having on Harry. You can see Giovanni Ribisi struggle, right, as an actor yeah. with with kind of the emotions Seth's feeling as he's watching this man's life unravel, right? The the savings are gone. The house that they were going to bid on, they lose. You know, the, the stock is not going in the direction that was originally promised. And, and Seth's really trying to find a way out and, and a way to help, you know, both Harry and, and unfortunately himself moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's actually pretty powerful stuff in a movie mm-hmm. that I think sometimes people don't don't take seriously. And maybe that's because of the over-the-top, you know, Ben Affleck speech, that's the right. Vin Diesel, you know, sort of closing a sale in the middle of the trading floor and the guys are pretending to make noise. In the I mean, there are aspects of this that are just a little too on the nose. Yeah. But there, mm-hmm. it is some powerful stuff with respect to Harry's plate. But so as, as Seth is sort of learning his trade and actually getting quite good at closing these income, income the regulators, right? Incomes the FBI. And they identify Seth as someone who could help them as a potential informant or an insider that can help them build their case because he's kind of new to this thing. He hasn't been there long. He doesn't have a history in finance. And because they actually kind of have a lot of leverage over him, right? They've been listening to him on the phone. They can point to all of his misdeeds. And because Seth, in a moment of of weakness, I guess I'll say, actually sort of recruits his father, who is a respected federal judge, into the scheme he, he thinks he's trying to help people out, but all he does is sort of implicate his father in wrongdoing. So for the feds, Seth is a perfect guy to flip. And again, Kurt, we're not aiming for spoilers. We're only at about, what, the 15-year mark or 13-year mark since this movie came out. So we might still be in that. You got some time to watch it. Uh, so we encourage you guys to, to kind of check this out. One of my favorite parts of the movie is, is you know, one of those kind of character development scenes where Seth's getting to know the guys and they all go over to, to one of the rich partners' houses where they are, of course, eating takeout pizza on the floor after parking all of their Ferraris in the driveway and watching that movie we, we said we would not bring up as a review, Wall Street. And the characters actually go around the room and try to outdo each other in quoting Gordon Gecko's speech when he first meets with Bud Fox in his office. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like I said, the, the movie's just, it's so entertaining. That's another great scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of just, 
again, it's just dripping with with quotable lines and and maybe a picture of Wall Street that 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 exists in our minds. Maybe it's from an, a, a time gone by. Um, you know, but definitely yeah. worth worth watching. Well, Kurt, we're trying to pull some some meaningful insights here from these Hollywood fictions. What what do you take from like the legal side in terms of the Boiler Room movie about obviously a Boiler Room? I, I mean, it's it's interesting. These mm-hmm. things still happen, you know, with some frequency. A, a few times a year, we'll see an SEC enforcement press release where they're talking about a boiler room that's operating, you know, somewhere in the U.S. where people are doing the exact things we see in this movie. You know, they're they're using lists. They're calling people who they think have the means to invest. They're using high pressure tactics to get them to invest in shell companies yeah. or penny stocks, you know, solely for the purpose of, you know, pumping up a price so that they can make a quick buck. And they don't care about what happens to the person on the other end of the phone. So it, it's a real thing. So for, for me, in a sense, it's interesting to see it depicted in this way, right? It's it's maybe a warning for, for folks that are watching it uh, to be careful if they're getting, you know, calls from a broker that they don't know that they didn't reach out to, right? These folks didn't reach out and say, hey, I'd yep. like to open an account. I'm thinking about saving, you know, for retirement. It's it's the other way, you know, but it's also interesting when you when you see schemes like this, and I'll, I'll call it a scheme, mm-hmm. almost trying to figure out like, who's, who's the victim here? Who's the sucker? You know, I mean, on one sense, obviously, you've got the people on the other end of the line, who are getting, you know, fooled or taken advantage of by these very persuasive young salespeople. Of course, the people yep. on the other end of the line think that they've got some kind of, you know, edge mm-hmm. and, and it's somebody on the other side of the bet that's the sucker, right? I mean, everybody is sort of portrayed almost as as the loser in a sense here by the time you get to the end of the movie. I think maybe I think maybe that's true. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of interplay. Right. And again, watch the movie to see how this this all plays out. One other scene that I always hearken back to is, you know, Seth is mid career in terms of his sales skills and abilities. And they show him on a Saturday morning eating a cereal and getting a call from I think it's the New York Post or, or some daily newspaper. And the guy says, hey, would you like to subscribe? And Seth goes, no. And he goes, okay. And Seth kind of takes the opportunity to talk to the the newspaper guy on the phone and be like, no, dude, like you're giving up already. Like try to sell me. And they go through this four or five minute back and forth where he's hitting him with facts and figures and how great the paper is. And then he goes, so are you going to buy from me? And he goes, no, I already subscribed to the New York Times. It hangs up. It's kind of (laughs) another one of those character (laughs) development pieces I think is great. So definitely check out Boiler Room. Not too old to this point, but, but a movie both Kurt and I look at fondly. Okay. All right. So we've got time for, for one more. And this, as I said, you were going to surprise me. So what's our, what's our last movie? Here, Let's Chris? jump ahead another decade or so, Kurt. We're looking back at a, you know, a time period, right, that, that we talk about a, a lot in the Insecurities podcast that's really changed kind of the landscape, right? And the 2008 financial crisis is that stake in the ground that there's a before time and an after time in terms of how financial markets are regulated and, and what's been kind of the focus of, of trading and, and investment banking, a lot of those things. So there's a movie that came out right after right after that period that I think, you know, really leans into a lot of the issues that happened is, is a pretty important portrayal of that time period. And Kurt, I'll describe it to you in a couple of different ways. This movie harkens back to the very popular television show 24 starring Jack Bauer. It also includes elements or a framework that's similar to 
one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, Love Actually. And it's a okay. fiction movie, but it's based on real life circumstances, pretty close to what's happening in the early days of that financial crisis. Any idea what movie I'm talking no, about, Kurt? Actually, what Love Actually <laughs> no, and Jack actually. Bauer don't uh, don't come together. It is the 2011 thriller named Margin Call. Uh, the movie takes place during a 36-hour period of time, very tight timeline a la the CTU office that Jack Bauer populated, mm -hmm. uh, where mid-level employees at a major investment bank realize uh, the risky securities exposure that uh, they actually have on the books may upend the bank and the market generally as they see fit. This ensemble cast, very similar to, to one of another movie we love, Love Actually, includes folks with names like Kevin Spacey, Zachary Kinto, Jeremy Irons, Paul Bettany, Demi Moore, Stanley Tucci. I mean, we're getting up wow. to a pretty good royalty of A-list here. That's a really good cast, actually. I mean, <laughs> I, so I'm getting the, the Jack Bauer love actually vibe <laughs> here, but I actually haven't seen this, this movie. So, I mean, tell me more. What's the gist? So, I mean, the movie functions around kind of a handful of folks working in, in a, in a mid-level position in risk, you know, at an investment bank. The bank is never named, but some corollaries in, in, in pop culture and, and in reviews really liken it to that seminal weekend with Lehman Brothers in September of 2008. Mm -hmm. The short story is a risk management associate is handed a side project by a colleague uh, that's exploring the risk profile of the bank and, and what it holds in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, the associate played by Zachary Quinto stays late to explore the assumptions that are underlying this model that he's reviewing. He realizes that his colleague has identified the fact that the assumptions being applied here don't actually reflect the true volatility of mortgage-backed securities. And if that volatility is factored in, the bank is significantly over-levered in its holdings on the, the mortgage-backed securities and the derivatives therefrom, and it's likely to go bankrupt, if not you know, really upend uh, the financial markets as a whole. Interesting. That's quite a thing to discover and probably a pretty difficult message to to deliver. How do they handle that in the film? Yeah, not just one of those, hey, I'm going to stop by the boss's office for five minutes and get his take. <laughs> right. One of the things that I think Margin Call gets right and, and is really celebrated for in terms of its, its portrayal is those internal firm dynamics of those communications, right? You've got folks whose full-time job it is is to monitor and manage risk. You then watch kind of the dominoes fall up as this reporting continues to be scrutinized and then legitimized by different levels of management until in what's a pretty memorable scene, the CEO played by Jeremy Irons is helicoptered in, in the middle of the night. You can imagine him coming to Manhattan from, from somewhere nice in, in the greater New York tri-state area on his helicopter to get a solid understanding of what the team's presenting to him, maybe express some some distaste for how the the bank arrived at this position and then as any executive does make some solid and quick decisions about what actually to do sounds i mean a little a little dark right this is a little <laughs> a little somber maybe yeah. i mean what are some of the highlights like, bring us up a little bit well, I think, too, right, one of the things that this film touches on is really kind of the what I'll call the capitalism at any cost mentality to lean into the darkness here. You know, each of the individuals who's identifying this information is reflecting on what it means for the institution, for the bank, what it means for the markets, and then also what it means for themselves. And I would encourage, you know, the average insecurities listener, I think, would be able to, to pick up on this movie quickly. But you're not going to get the kind of nuts and bolts discussion that was popularized with the big short. Right. Selena Gomez does not make a cameo here and break the fourth <laughs> wall to describe credit default swaps. Um, it really is a realistic depiction of the real time decision making. Right. We're talking about that Thursday and Friday in September 2008, where mm -hmm. Lehman Brothers had to make some tough, some tough decisions. But 
I really love, as this movie plays out, I'd encourage you to watch it. You know, it is that portrayal of what the bank's decisions are approaching their counterparties the next day and how they're going to, you know, maybe unload some of these inappropriately priced assets and who the harm is going to go to. One of the things, Kurt, you asked about uplifting here, I thought an interesting exchange between Paul Bettany and Zachary Quinto's characters are talking about potentially losing their jobs, and it must be three or four in the morning at this point in this 36-hour movie. And you can hear Paul Bettany kind of talk through what his monthly expenses are. And to the penny, from his memory, he can tell you how much he spends in sending money back to his family. He can tell you how much he spends on, on his living expenses along the way. He also does you know, somewhat detailed accounting for all of the vices that he enjoys on an annual basis and how much he's spent on those. <laughs> um, but to me, that's right. It's really kind of that through line of you know, a quant is a quant is a quant, right? You might be staring at a computer yeah. screen and developing an algorithm. You're also thinking about that with your personal finances in your checkbook. Right. Well, you, you've sold me. Sounds like a good one. Definitely going to check it out. Is this a good like Saturday night movie with my kids, Chris? <sighs> I'd encourage you to check out the live action remake of The Little Mermaid before you take your children <laughs> to, to see Margin Call. Uh, definitely, like I said, more accessible to those average insecurities listeners. Maybe your children are, Kurt. I don't know if you, you subject them to our wonky and fresh takes along the way. One interesting thing about this movie, though, is that they actually filmed it on a shoestring budget. It only cost about $3 million to make, even with all of that all-star cast. And one of the things they saved money on was location. In kind of a meta-slash-ironic you know, portrayal here, the movie was filmed in 2010 in the one Penn Plaza building in Midtown in space on the 42nd floor that had recently been vacated by a trading firm that had gone under in the financial crisis. So... I guess the proof is in the pudding there. You know, they benefited from some of the things they're exploring in the movie. Uh-huh. And very interesting. And I'm sure that leads to some of the speculation about what they were actually talking about in the movie. That's well, right. I, this has been fun. I actually I actually like this. You know, I as we're as we're talking, as I was thinking about this episode, I mean, there's a lot that we didn't talk about. Yeah. Right? So for me, I led with it. I'll mention again, love talking about whistleblowers. The mm-hmm. informant is a great movie. Yes. Obviously, you know. Wall Street, you know, Wall Street 2, whatever, Money Never Sleeps, I think that's what it's mm-hmm. called, right? right? Wolf of Wall Street, The Big Short. There, there are a ton of movies we could talk about here. They're all really good. Maybe we'll have to do this again next summer. But but really enjoyed this nice little curated group that we talked about today. Yeah, we're excited for the summer blockbusters this year, right? We referenced a couple of movies we might go see. There may be others out there in the finance world we haven't heard about yet. They usually don't get the same coverage from Hollywood as some of the superhero movies and and kid-focused movies along the way. So again, for those listeners out there, if there's other movies we haven't mentioned, please write in. We'd love to, to have more conversations like this in the future. Absolutely. We're really looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm in force underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz. 
as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.